Okay, welcome to today's episode of the Chris and Paul Show. I am here with my buddy Chris Beardsley, and we are going to talk about plateaus today. Chris, what's going on, my man? I'm good, thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Be more excited than that, dude. We're doing a, an awesome podcast, and it's a we're still alive, and it's a wonderful day, and we're going to explain to all these noobs how plateaus work. What do you think? What do you think about plateau? When I hear the word plateaus, when I get to ask this a lot, Paul, how do I overcome a plateau? I do that thing where my mind does a thousand different questions that I probably have before I can answer to you how you overcome a plateau. Do you feel the same way? I think the way that I think about plateaus is to, I, I start with the physiology. I try and go, well, what are the possibilities? What What are the available possibilities that could lead to somebody failing to progress from one training session to the next? And I guess the first thing I do is is to say, well, it's got to either be a fatigue problem or a mm-hmm. stimulus problem. That's that's the first thing I do. Hundred percent. That's exactly what I think. That's that's my first two things. One of the two things. In fact, I made a post about. I don't know if you saw this. I was like, my opinion, and we'll get into this. The easiest ways to overcome a plateau, and if you look through the different things I have, is they're either uh, they're dealing with the, the amount of stimulus that you're getting or reducing the amount of fatigue. And I think that's the fatigue. Exactly. And I think the fatigue one is actually the easier one to detect. So if you suspect, or first things first, if you've just noticed that you've reached a plateau, you've not been able to move the weight, you know, higher or add some more reps on a particular progression model that you're using. In those situations, I think it's easy to find out whether it's fatigue that's causing that problem. So when we say fatigue, what we're saying is that you did a previous workout and you incurred some fatigue and that fatigue is now still present and you're trying to progress, but you've got this fatigue present that's stopping you from actually achieving the improvement that you're Now, the, you're the present for. fatigue that we would be referring to here would be kind of something like the inflammatory response that we have from muscle damage that's causing a reduction in um, central nervous system fatigue and motor unit recruitment. That would be the the type of fatigue, or maybe, what is it, maybe even potentially like delayed onset muscle soreness, or there's there's something that's causing an interference effect in motor unit recruitment, essentially, or are we talking more at the peripheral level? So it could be either. I mean, it depends. So if we say, for example, we're following some kind of full body program, and, you know, this is just for the purpose of simplicity, um, and maybe we're doing a, a full body program which actually includes the same exercise in all three workouts. Now, obviously, that's a beginner type program, but, you know, just for the purpose of the example, then obviously that could be um, any local fatigue as well as any central nervous system fatigue because you've got that uh from one workout to the next, you've got some local fatigue that could still be present in the form of muscle damage or excitation, contraction, coupling failure, but also um, the central nervous system would do the same thing. If, on the other hand, you're following some kind of split routine or if you're following a kind of daily undulating routine where you're not doing the same exercise in each of your workouts uh, each week, which is more of an intermediate or an advanced type routine, then it's more likely to be a central nervous system fatigue phenomenon because you're not actually creating damage very close to the workout, you know, the previous workout, because you've obviously been training different muscle fibers, even if you've been training similar exercises. So 
generally speaking, I think for a beginner program, it's more likely to be a mix of everything, muscle damage, excitation, contraction, coupling, failure, and CNS fatigue. For the more intermediate and advanced lifters, I think it's mainly going to be central nervous system fatigue. So it could actually be nothing to do with the previous kind of time that you did that exercise. That might not be what's causing the problem. What might be causing the problem is just the fact that you've been training hard on another exercise, even a different part of the body, quite close before you've now attempted this additional kind of uh, this additional workout so the fatigue is gonna be the problem now the, the point i was kind of starting with was the fact that it's quite easy to detect whether fatigue is the problem because all you have to do is give yourself an extra day of rest or mm-hmm. back off slightly in terms of your other uh, kind of uh, workouts that you might be doing at the same in the same kind of training week and you should then notice whether you've actually been able to improve uh, you know appropriately in in line with the progression model that you're well, doing that was actually one of one of my solutions there immediately to say okay well you can test to see if fatigue is the problem because let's say you get let's say you feel like you've been in a plateau of particular exercise let's say you know monday bench press day you go in like my bench press has been stuck um but you've been training um however you've been training instead of training your bench press on monday take a rest day on monday and then do your bench press on tuesday and just alter your training split so that gives you that extra day to alleviate some of that fatigue and then if you go in and you're like oh my bench press jumped up a bunch well then you know that you were basically kind of to use the the word overreaching a little bit in other words you were still a fatigued debt going into that monday bench press training session so those are kind of easy to troubleshoot to see whether or not you are actually in a uh and we'll get to like the other different types of plateaus but just being in fatigue debt is probably going to be more often than not i think the number one cause of that's that's creating the quote-unquote plateau and I don't think that guys necessarily like to hear that because kind of my uh, my overall sense of, the, you know, picking, read, reading the room in terms of questions being asked and what people say on social media, it almost seems like there's always some ways like, how can I train more? How can I do more? And there's always the more is going to give me more results, whether, um, you know, it's about strength or physique development or whatever. And generally, you and I, kind of our theme, especially for the past few years, has been how do I have less fatigue? And that's almost always the number one thing that we're after is like, oh, if we can just reduce fatigue as much as possible, almost everything else takes care of itself. So the number one thing to test, uh, and that was actually in my post, and this, let me preface, we didn't even have a, we did not even have a, a preliminary conversation about any of that idea. This is a totally off the cuff podcast. So Chris and I are literally just shooting the shit in this one. And my thing was, if you take an extra rest day and you go in and you find that your plateau is magically gone, then you automatically know what the answer was. So that's a pretty easy one to, to you can literally troubleshoot that for yourself. Exactly. And that's why I always suggest to people that they test that first before they start um, speculating that the problem is something different, then just check that it's not that you're still too fatigued from your previous workout and that's what's causing the problem. And it's worth noting that the presence of that fatigue from a previous workout is going to create ongoing problems because it's going to suppress your ability to stimulate hypertrophy and therefore um, an increase in the number of reps or the weight uh, with the workout that you're doing. So if you're trying to do a workout in a fatigued state, and I know, again, people aren't going to want to hear this, but we've covered it before. (laughs) If you try and do a workout in a fatigued state, you are not stimulating the same 
quantity of hypertrophy as if you do that workout in a fresh state. So it's much better to give yourself these uh, kind of appropriate recovery times so that you can stimulate the appropriate amount of hypertrophy that allows you to then increase the reps or the weight from workout to workout. So it has so a stimulus there's, impact. There's muscle to get people to understand this because it's, it's really important and we'll have to backtrack, I think, a little bit to talk about that because I think one of the things when we talked about the frequency, and this this is a, actually does matter within this podcast, is the, the frequency thing that we went over, is that um, myofibril protein synthesis, you know, kind of from the research that we have is elevated for around 48 hours, could be up to 70 hours. In other words, we don't have exact data on it. But then people get in their head, they lose sight of the fact that muscle damage can be present for four or five days after a training session and i don't know if you've seen this conversation um brought up a lot but people say like well if myofibril protein synthesis is back to baseline after 48 hours then why am i not training again after 48 hours and i'll always ask them i was like so you have zero muscle damage how do you know you have zero muscle damage after 48 hours so if their muscle damage is still present and you go in then even if we get a another quote-unquote spike of myofibril protein synthesis it's significantly lower than what we already we're basically dealing with because we have muscle damage repair that's having that to go on by the myofibril protein synthesis yeah i mean that's basically exactly what we're talking about here we're talking about the fact that there could be a period of time where it goes beyond the stimulus period, as I would describe it, which is the, the maybe the 48 hours of elevated myofibrillar protein synthesis rates, in which we're still really not ideally going to be successful if we're doing another workout because we've still got that muscle damage and therefore that CNS fatigue uh, present. And just to clarify what I've just said, um, muscle damage creates an inflammatory response. That inflammatory response gets into the bloodstream, the brain detects it and produces central nervous system fatigue. It doesn't matter where that muscle is 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 is, is in the body. So no, no, no. Have... The, see, they don't understand this. Con this is another misunderstood concept. So that muscle is independent from the rest of the nervous system. You understand where I'm going at with there. They'll go, well, what if I train, what if I train hamstrings instead of chest? I'm like, well, the inflammatory response is still in the bloodstream and it's therefore being detected by the brain. It doesn't matter that you did, you know, uh, upper body workout yesterday. If you do a lower body workout today, then you've still got that uh, inflammatory response in the bloodstream. It's still going to suppress recruitment because the brain is what is controlling recruitment, not the muscle. So basically people are doing these very complicated splits and they're absolutely annihilating one body part and then going back in the gym the next day and annihilating another body part that's really not going to work that well uh from a from a cns fatigue perspective the so what i was getting back to not to interrupt you because people always get pissed off if i interrupt you what i was talking about with training to a little bit too much overlap there is we have an expression of myops that comes up and if it hasn't come back to baseline and we go in and train again, we don't get the same degree of expression as we do when we allow it to come back down to baseline. And then we get that nice surge of myops again. So I think what I was getting back to there is the reason why people focus on frequency and overcoming plateaus with like frequency and I'll train it more often. Sometimes you can see this in a, a strength perspective because of practicing the motion over and over again. We actually have a bicep study that showed it was one group that was training biceps. I think it was two or three times a week. And another one was training once or twice a week. It, there was a discrepancy in the, in the frequency. Well, the one group that was training it more often 
gained more strength in doing their curls, but the hypertrophy outcomes were basically the same. So anytime you're practicing something more often, there's a potential for better strength increases simply due to the fact that there's going to be better neural adaptations that are going to occur from doing that. So what I was saying was if you train a muscle, let's say you train a muscle on Monday, like you do chest on Monday, like everybody does, you do your bench presses and you get that, um, you get that uh, elevation in myofibril protein synthesis and it's going to be up for, we'll just say like the 48 hours people talk about, but now you're going to go in and train it before it's come back to baseline. You don't get the same expression again because it's already elevated and coming back down. And I think that's where people have tried to quote unquote kind of hack the myofibril protein synthesis system. You know what I mean? Because they'll be like, well, if it's coming down here, I get another elevation and another elevation and another elevation. And I think that's what they, what they try to do. Sure, but I mean, at the moment, we're just kind of trying to nail down this fatigue um, kind of method, or not method, this fatigue uh, kind of explanation mm -hmm. for how uh, a plateau might occur. And I guess really the key thing here is that it may not necessarily be that you're not recovered from your previous, if we're t taking the bench press as an example, it may not be the previous bench press workout that's not recovered. It may be another workout entirely. It may simply be that your uh, kind of workout split is is, is not appropriate. But the, the thing that I always try and emphasize to people is that if they do leave a day of rest extra to see whether it is fatigue that's the problem, do not then go back to your previous training program and expect to carry on as if nothing had happened. Because the information that you've received from doing this test is that you're... Is that I'm, I'm not recovering. As I'm not recovering. Taking right? an extra day and go, oh, well, I'm recovered now, so I'll go no, back to my this, previous... they do this, I'll tell you another good example. <laughs> yeah, another good example of this is where when we talk, we've talked about deloads, right? So you and I have talked about deloads. We're like, okay, so you do a deload and, and the proper way to do a quote unquote deload is to you reduce volume or frequency. There's a reduction in something. You don't change training to failure, your proximity to failure. You just reduce something in there that allows you to alleviate fatigue that's existing, right? So then this is what people do. They're like, oh, I'll deload it, then I'll ramp back up again. I'm like, no, the information you just received was is that the way you have been training and causes you to have too much fatigue for the, the adaptations to kind of take place or express themselves in the training. So the, the feedback you just got was, this is how I'm supposed to be training so that I can recover. And this seems to be lost on these guys because they're still stuck in this mindset. I've got to do so much volume. I got to train so many times a week and do all this stuff. Whereas we're like, okay, if we're actually basing this off of the degree of progressive overload you're seeing in your training week, then you massage your variables to increase the progressive overload as much as possible. So if you do something like a deload, Chris, or you add an extra day of training, and then you see more progressive overload, you don't go, ooh, okay, so then that did work. Now let me go back to doing what I was doing. Absolutely. And that's, it seems to be what most people do do. But I guess my, I always try to emphasize that the, the, as you say, the feedback that's been received is telling us that that's not what we should do. We should change our training program to give ourselves the ability to recover. Now that could be um, changing our training frequency. It could be leaving more rest days. It could be changing the number of sets we're doing. It could be leaving a rep in reserve here or there. It could be moving our rep range down to heavier loads. There's loads of things we can do, um, but we should be doing some of those things and testing to see if it then allows us to 
uh, continue making progress after we then go back into our structured training program and, and you know having taken that rest day to check so i always think that fatigue is the first thing to check because it's so easy to do and it actually gives us an enormous amount of actionable information um, that we can then impl Im implement in our training programs to to make uh, sure that the plateau stops happening so i would say it's a fatigue problem is the first thing i would check but the alternative of course is that it's a stimulus problem and i think this is one of the things that people jump to assume initially and i would not do that i would always assume that it's a fatigue problem and check that because it's the easiest thing to check but if it's a stimulus problem then i think we've got some interesting if we've checked and it's not a fatigue problem then we've got some really check interesting the fatigue, check the fatigue do something do something to that looks like it should allow more recovery first because then we're checking the fatigue problem so that's step one in overcoming a plateau absolutely always and then of course the alternative is that it's a stimulus problem. Now, let me try and define what we mean by a stimulus problem. What we mean, and I'm going to be quite specific here, and people are not going to necessarily hear what I'm saying, but I'll try and be as specific as I can. What we're <laughs> saying is that the stimulus that you achieved in the last workout that you did with that exercise is not enough for you to be able to add the reps or the weight in accordance with your planned progression model. Now, I've tried to word that really, really carefully because a lot of people, I think, just make the assumption that... I will say this. I'm interrupting you again. This is this is a very... I don't know if the esoteric is the right word. You and I had to have a few conversations about this. And it's kind of a difficult concept to explain. And when you, after you and I went through it multiple, to, multiple times, it's incredibly intelligent and smart, but I will also say it's a very tough thing to explain to a person. And I, I'll say this, and you'll tell me this if, I, if I'm getting this right, is that you have to have a planned progression to where you're not outrunning the adaptations. So that's where you're we're going. In, you're Basically. not intentionally, I know that's where you're taking this, is you're not intentionally outrunning the adaptations. In other words, you're not asking yourself to do something that adaptations are not almost in place for. Let me try and illustrate it in a way that is, I think, probably easier for people to understand. If I'm aiming to, um, if I'm doing a progression model and I'm maybe working with, let's say a single set to failure, then the next time I go in the gym, I have to add a repetition. And mm -hmm. if I don't add that repetition, then I have not progressed, I am plateauing. If on the other hand, instead of trying to gain another repetition, I put a tiny additional like amount of weight like just a couple of coins or something on top of the weight <laughs> stack that i'm doing technically right you see that this is a really cool illustration because if i literally add a couple of coins onto the weight stack i've technically used more you technically weight. have used more load and if i do the same number of reps that i did last time then i have actually progressed now you have actually progressively this overlooked. is really useful because it allows people to understand that certain progression models are going to be much more aggressive than others. Now, we know that some progression models are super aggressive. There's some very famous progression models that actually require you to add weight every time you go in the gym. Um, you know, over utterly impossible. Time, which is like a, a, obviously a beginner territory sort of yeah, situation sure, yeah. and pretty much impossible for, for anybody who's been training for a while. And conversely, you know, I've been making a lot of, uh, I've been supporting this idea of what some people have called the patient lifter model, which is an incredibly slow way of, of actually moving upwards. Super and boring. Super, super boring, boring, super slow. Uh, really, really kind of, uh, but actually I find very, very useful for people who are uh, very prone to plateau. The point is that 
a progression model, the thing you're following is the, you can see it as the demand that's being placed upon you by the progression model that you've you've implemented. That is the, the strength gain that you're expected to make. On the other hand, you may actually be creating an adaption. You should, hopefully will be creating some sort of adaption. It's just not a big enough adaption to meet that demand. That's the point, as you say, esoteric, but it's really, really important because the progression no, model. No, no, no. I, I don't, I don't, that's a really, really, really important point right there is that if you go in, let's say you do, I'm going to, I want to give a real life practical application example of what you just described. Let's say you did a set of eight reps with a hundred pounds this week and then your next workout that comes up, right? Let's say you have had stimulus and there's adaptations that have occurred at a, at, you know, the micro level, right? There have been positive adaptations that occurred, but they're just not large enough that allows you to do the ninth rep. So a lot of people, this is a very important point that people will go, well, I'm in, uh, um, I'm in a plateau because I haven't been able to add a rep. Where in actuality, what you're talking about there is, and this is something I've stressed with people too, is that the adaptations have occurred, but right now they're just not large enough to where you they could express themselves by that ninth rep or adding five pounds or whatever. So I don't, to me, a plateau all depends on the training status of the lifter, but also how are you how much are you trying to ask your body to present those expressions of adaptations within the workout itself? So if you're saying I have to add five pounds every workout, that's not going to last very long, right? Depending on the lift and how the status of the lifter. And if your thing is I have to add a rep every single workout, that's that's that you can run that up for a little while, depending. But that too is going to eventually level off. It's kind of it's definitely not linear, and you're basically asking you get to a point where you're asking say the feedback that i'm getting from the workout is not commensurate with the actual degree of adaptations that are occurring so i feel like i'm in a plateau so what you're saying is i did the eight reps with 100 pounds today there's positive adaptations that occurred but they're just not significant enough by the time i do the next workout that they can express themselves in what we think of as progressive overload even though i'm not really in a plateau adaptations have occurred well, we're now in a terminology uh, kind of uh, quandary because um, if you, we, we kind of need to define what we mean by plateau. If we, if we want to define it practically and easily, a plateau is failing to improve from the previous workout. That's the easiest way to define a plateau. If you correctly want to say, well, hang on a minute, maybe a plateau is, is something more profound or problematic than simply not making progress from the previous workout, then we need some more terminology. Um, I guess what it, it comes down to is um, really just trying to understand what we think is is going on. But if we do use the word plateau just to simply mean that I've not progressed from a previous workout, then you have kind of these two practical um, kind of uh, approaches from that. If we've said, well, it's not a fatigue problem, um, it's potentially a stimulus problem. If it's a stimulus problem, it could be just simply the fact that the adaptions are not s substantial enough to confer the magnitude of strength gain that I need to meet my progression model demands. And right. again, I'm being super clear with my terminology and kind of phrasing here. So if you need to go and listen to that again, please do. Um, when we do that, um, you know, are we then saying, well, I can just do this same weight, same reps for two more workouts, and then I would perhaps actually then move up a, 
uh, a notch and then make that repetition gain or achieve that strength, uh, that, that increase in weight. So potentially, you know, we just need to sit there for uh, with that weight, with those rep ranges for maybe another two workouts and then actually we'd start to improve. Alternatively, if we are not comfortable with that, and I know, you know, Paul and I have talked about this before on occasion and, and from, from what I understand, he's quite happy with, uh, you know, sitting on a weight for, for a week or two before he moves up. I'm not patient. I don't like that. It, 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 kind of, it, it stresses me out and I, I start to think that maybe my program is not working. So I tend to prefer um, progression models that actually demand much smaller increments in strength from workout to workout. So, you like to add, so you like to add, even if it's like a tiny little extra bit of weight, you prefer that. I would much prefer to either follow the patient lifter model where it's actually demanding very, very tiny strength gains from me every single workout. So therefore the actual adaptions that are creating the strength gains are able to match that because patient lifter model is super, super, super slow. You know, you're literally just adding one. You know what that that is, Chris? That's that it's the old, remember the old hard gainer model that, um, Stuart McRoberts talked about like literally a few decades ago where you would use micro loading and you would use, he would literally use like, yeah, those little micro loading things. And, and I want to say they were like half a pound little plates that you could add. And he preferred, that's exactly what you're describing. He preferred that over the kind of more aggressive approach to progressive overload where you're consistently trying to add larger increasements in, in loading and intensity or trying to add a lot of reps or be rep, rep goals every time. He preferred what you're talking to the patient lifter model where you're like, okay, if I'm doing eight reps this week, I'm doing it with say a hundred pounds. So I have this micro load loading model. I can do it in this week. I'm going, I'm doing 102 pounds and I'm doing it for eight reps or whatever. And then the, you know, the next week you, it, then it's a hundred and say five pounds from like the hundred pounds. So it but took you two, two workouts, two, three workouts to go from a hundred to 105 pounds or whatever. And that's, I think the same, it's the same kind of model. It's the same idea, absolutely. I mean, the the patient lifter model uses reps rather than weight and doesn't micro-load because it's easier to then use in any gym scenario where you haven't got access to to sort of uh, extra sort of tiny plates that you can add on. But ultimately, the concept is the same. Throw quarters on there. There's some quarters on there. Concept is the same. Literally quarters. So, yeah, you could absolutely do that. You could absolutely (laughs) do that. that. That's the whole point, though. The point is to just get people to understand that the progression model is demanding a strength gain from you. And if you can't meet that demand, you are going to basically plateau and not be able to meet the uh, kind of the target that you've set for yourself. But the reality is that it's not a plateau in the sense of the adaptions. It's a plateau from the progressive overload overload point of view. So it's not a it's not an adaption plateau. It's a progressive overload plateau. So maybe that's the terminology that we need. Um, but in terms of progressive overload plateau, you could basically practically deal with that either in the way that Paul deals with it, from my understanding, which is to basically just to kind of sit on it for a week or two and then it seems to move. In my situation, I just pick a progression model that's a lot slower and therefore I get mo- much more confidence that what I'm doing is working. The reason I'd like to do that is because <laughs> when you get when you get into the advanced territory with somebody 
and plateaus are happening all over the place, yeah. it becomes really annoying to start going, well, I plateaued on this workout or this exercise last week, so I'm going to have to leave a rest day here. And now I'm plateauing on this exercise, so I'm going to have to leave another. And basically, you never actually get a routine that you can stick to because you're constantly having to check all of your different exercises. For I also don't know, like, Chris, when these, when these guys ask me, they're like, well, I'm at a plateau, and then I'll do this a lot of times, and I'll go out and I'll look, look at their you know, their Instagram or their social or whatever. And I can tell a lot of these guys are what I would consider to be probably fairly novice lifters. And I'm like, okay, one workout, and I'm just going to state this emphatically, and I will state this factually, one workout for a multitude of reasons does not constitute what I would consider a true plateau. There's too many variables in there to state that you're actually truly plateaued because you you didn't make progress from this workout to this workout. If you went to, that's why I kind of say, if it's a second workout that you've done that exercise. So you, you did a hundred pounds for eight reps, one workout, and then you did a hundred pounds. You only got eight reps again. When you get to the next workout, if it's still a hundred, hundred pounds for eight reps, to me, that's a point where you have to do kind of like what we talked about. Okay. Let me check a rest day. Let me put an extra rest day in. Let me do something to see if I'm overrunning my recovery ability. So the reason that I state that is just because there's a multitude of, of even existential things that can happen that can reduce the performance of a workout. Yeah, I use the word existential there. Existential. Well, I was, I was laughing because um, you used initially you said true plateau, and I immediately went like, okay, so this is like muscular failure. So we've got true plateaus, <laughs> and existential plateaus, and um, ecumenical plateaus. <laughs> it's like how many, okay, so how many the, types the, of... You know why I say that, is, that I tell you, is, is, I'm having you use the word true there, is because I, didn't, I never considered myself, I always thought I had to have at least, there had to be something repeatable, like truly repeatable, not an, an, a coincidental, maybe a coincidental plateau. So, so obviously there's a difference between a plateau and a bad workout. I mean, you can have a bad day. That's what day, I'm getting at. Have, so yeah, absolutely. Plateau, no, I get, plateau, that. I get a that. plateau means that you haven't been able to add load or reps to this exercise, whatever, for whatever period of time you're trying to define that in. But that's the issue, isn't it? Because everybody is then going to define it differently, which is why I think actually it makes more sense to say, do we have a progressive overload plateau, which is literally just I didn't make an improvement from last time i did this exact same workout in which case it could just actually be explained by a bad day right alternatively we say is it an adaptation Maybe that's a better way to say it is like when somebody plateaued. says i've plateaued i was like did you plateau or did you have a bad workout that's maybe that's a just a, a way cleaner way to say it. Did you have a bad workout or are you plateaued? Because a bad workout, we have those where we don't have a good workout and we don't make progress on an exercise. We don't add load or we don't add reps. So did you have a bad workout or you had a plateau? Not the same thing. Because I think you that's should be probably able to, fair. That's probably a better. Yeah, I think that's a, a much better explanation. Did you have a bad workout? Did you have a subpar workout or you had a plateau? So, um, like that's kind of how you have to judge that. So when a guy says what do I do when I plateau? We talked about the first step one is fatigue. Now the second step is not, is, is the amount of stimulus you're supplying and not overrunning the demand um, for progressive overload. I, that's a really comp. I don't know why I feel like I, I told you and I totally understand. I, I think it's, I think about. it's because most people think of strength as the adaption. 
I think that's why we've got a problem. I think it's because people still believe strength is an adaption, not helped by the fact that a lot of hypertrophy researchers literally write that in their papers. They they talk about strength as an adaption. Uh, there is a massive, uh, okay, so here's my issue sometimes, and this is a completely different topic. I don't know that we always need to include the strength adaptations in the hypertrophy research when we look at things, because I think they can conflate the, the discussion sometimes, because sometimes they're helpful and sometimes they're not. Because if the whole point of doing this X, Y, or Z program or methodology or whatever principle we're trying to test is to check for muscle growth, then if the if the a lot of times they'll include the the strength component, and yes, of course, the addition of any new contractile protein should give us an increase in strength because that's what's producing force. But at the same time as we've just talked about before, the simple practice of doing something more in the set principle means that generally speaking is that if we're doing this more often that we're going to get better at it just due to, to more efficient motor unit recruitment patterns and those kind of things. So if, if I'm, if I'm doing a curl three times a week, then you're doing a curl twice a week. Um, my curls might get stronger simply because of the fact that I'm practicing them more. I mean, this is, this is kind of a very well, um, known thing throughout the research is clearly the, the practice principle and the set principle. If I'm going to do it more, I develop uh, more efficiency at doing it. So, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to get more muscle growth from it. So people get those, those kind of things mixed up quite often too. So it's not always even to say that progressive overload is the, the hundred percent hallmark that muscular adaptations that are occurring at the rate too. Right. No, but if it doesn't happen, then you can be fairly certain. If it doesn't certain. happen, you definitely aren't getting any. But I'm saying you, <laughs> if it doesn't happen, you definitely aren't getting it. And we do use progressive overload as a way to see that adaptations are occurring because they, if we're not getting any progressive overload, then clearly no adaptations are occurring. But ultimately, we need to remember that the strength gain is something that we always display. It's not something that we have. The thing that we have is an increase in recruitment or an improvement in our coordination or yes. any other strength-related adaption in addition to the hypertrophy that's happening. So the adaptions that we're experiencing um, may not be sufficient to display a certain strength gain, but they may be uh, sufficient to display a different strength gain. And the progression model that we are choosing has a very, very big impact on whether we are likely to see that strength gain happening or not. So I guess really what I'm saying is the very first thing when we're thinking about stimulus is, am I trying to add too much weight or too many reps too quickly? Because if I am, then I'm not going to see the actual adaptions, the strength gains that are resulting from the actual adaptions that I am creating. So I may be making my life a lot harder than it has to be by trying to make progress. So quality. this is kind of this is also an esoteric way for me to describe this, and I get this in my groups. And a guy will say something like, "The way that I describe it is this: There's a difference between a max set of like six reps and a hard set of six reps. And the way that I try to describe that is, is some of these things aren't neatly defined in boxes. So if and I know this from being in the gym, if I do six reps. There's a difference in that being a very, very difficult, hard six reps, or I did a very strong six reps. So that strong six reps probably means... Why don't you just use reps in reserve like a normal I was going to get to that. I was going to get to that. I was, you were just... Uh, sometimes there's a way, easier ways. The strong six reps probably means a one RIR. So it, a very strong six reps. 
a very hard six reps probably means there was nothing going. I'm not even going to get to that that half rom on the seventh rep. You know what I mean? Where you do the six and you try for the seventh and you don't even get half the range of motion. You know when you get that six rep and it takes about five seconds to grind the whole thing out, there's nothing happening. So you that's like when you're like, you know, that's task failure. I'm not even going to attempt the seventh. I don't need to. Nothing's going to happen. And then there's that one where you do six reps and that six reps, it goes, but it's got that nice, it's slow, but it's got that, you, you feel strong on it. And you're like, I probably could do one more if I attempted it. Here is kind of an interesting thing that I try to explain to, to people that go through my groups. When you're in, when in the early phase of a meso, you want to pick a load that really is kind of more like one RIR because in the early parts of it, and this is what I'll tell you why, you push right up against that ceiling and almost will stalemate right out of the rest of the whole mesocycle if you're choosing true rep maxes at those ranges. So I don't, the reason why I tell people that sets to failures is this, is because I think most people aren't always going to task failure right out of the gate. So I, I kind of assume if I tell them one RIR, I feel like they'll probably do two or three RIR sometimes. And but if I tell them make it a make it where you feel like it's a strong set of six, like you probably could have done the seven. So I essentially am telling them one RIR, and then add load as we go through the meso cycle. And for the people who really kind of adhere to that, it's if I if I became very technical about it, it would be me saying here the first week it's going to be more like one point five RIR or one or two RIR, and then the next week's one. And I am actually doing that in yoke squats, so because I'm getting them to do, and I've been implementing this in my own training, it's worked incredibly well. Is to do like a set of four or five with one RIR for the first set. Make sure you leave that 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 one rep in reserve. So this comes after me and you talking for two years and you're like, you know, that one last rep that don't, I wish you'd need that on video. You know, you're like, you know, that one last rep that you're doing there, that's really crushing your fatigue for the rest of the workout. <laughs> you're laughing so hard. So Chris, for everybody listening, I have been a huge proponent of training to failure for a very long time. And Chris um, God bless his soul. He's such a patient, loving, understanding man. He has a way of coaxing over time. And he would say, he would just sneak stuff in there. Like he goes, like, you know, that one last rep that you're doing, that one right there goes, that one probably first off, a couple of things that hit. And as the meta analysis and regression came out, I remember sitting there looking at it and I was like, that MFR. And it was like that they show on those that last rep, actually, we have like, we actually have a reduction in motor unit recruitment in that last set, not to mention the fact that, that in the research, there's almost a continuous longer period of recovery time that happens when you do that actual true rep to failure. Now, doing more volume and leaving RIR off actually overruns your recovery the same way. You still end up with the fatigue part. So the kind of sweet spot in there, which is something you've been saying this whole time, is if you just leave that one last rep off, like just that one, and then if you're going to do your failure sets, chunk a one or two in afterwards, and then you'll probably be okay. But you leave, if you leave that one off there. So then a few months ago, um, I was feeling a little burnt, and I was like, I'm just going to leave that one off there. And then I saw my, my lifts start to rebound again and it was just for the simple fact of leaving 
that one. So I wasn't doing that, the, those four reps, that grindy, hard, super heavy four reps. It was it's a, a heavy set of four, but probably could do five or five and a half. That's the way I describe it. Probably five and a half reps. And then I would just do a reduction in load and pick something I could hit for six to eight really strong. And I was like, wow, this is like all of those. And then I'm, I'm literally sitting there and Joe and I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Like that. This is what Chris has been telling me for the past couple of years. He's like, just if you just leave that one, one rep off of your heavy set to failure, like you, you can, you're still getting all your effective reps in because then people will go, well, what about your five effective? You didn't do your five effective reps. I'm like, you with heavier loads, it doesn't matter. Every rep counts. Every rep, every rep matters. It's no, no reps left behind. Every child matters. So that is what I, I have, have really found is that um, for the people who are trying to eliminate, uh, eliminate some of that fatigue, the other step two there that they can focus on is if they've been doing the training to true, fa- true muscular failure, existential, um, paleolithic failure, if they've been doing all of those types of failures, past failure, um, what's the what's the other one that we had? Um, they're all just task failure. But all the different types, if you've been doing all of the failures, all the various flavors, uh, alphabet soup of, of, of failure types, if you actually just play around with one RIR for a while, I'm not a fan, I will say this, I'm not a fan of two RIR. It just feels like sissy training to me. Two RIR feels like sissy training. One RIR feel actually feels right to me. Um, I because I, I I feel very strong. Those are strong reps, and probably a little bit of my powerlifter that you know that I gravitate to is in there. But the one RIR approach feels right to me, and I do think that how you feel about your training is important. Two RIR, I cannot approach a set with two RIR in my head. It just doesn't work for me. So maybe it's a mental thing. But if I'm like, I'm leaving two reps on the table, I don't even know how to load it. If I'm leaving one rep on the table, I can load that. I know where one more rep is every time. Two more reps, I always feel like I could probably do one more. And I'm like, oh, there you go. That was a one RIR. Does that make sense? Like to me, two RIR is more difficult to gauge. Sure, definitely. Because two IR is the start of the slowing, the really, really severe slowing down phase. So the last two reps are the the really, really slow ones. And obviously, you get this huge drop off from uh, three RR to two RR. Um, And so you don't know that it's going to be slow until you start it. (laughs) That's the issue. Um, So you kind of like, it's it's the first rep that you do that you suddenly go, oh. And so you doing that to RIR, you know exactly where you are when you hit the one RIR because you already started slowing down. Yep. Um, so it's, that's the issue, I think. I just feel like the, that, that, that the feedback that you get on a one RIR, it seems more like authentic, the best way I can explain it. You're yeah. like, okay, I know there's just one more left in there. There's yeah, just one more sure. left, right? Like yeah, you yeah. said, with the two RIR, you have to be super aware that this is where the reps are going to start slowing down. Here was an interesting thing that you put in my head a long time ago, but then I ignored it because I, I didn't like, I didn't like, I would notice it too much during training. <laughs> you would be like, well, that last rep you do, that's when you really get that massive influx of intracellular calcium, Paul. 
you're like, that's the one that's really going to cause the excitation contraction coupling failure, you know, within the workout and it's going to lead to more of the muscle damage. And you're like, you said this to me. I don't know if you remember this. It's pretty funny. You go, you don't feel that when you do that you last. You absolutely don't. You're do. like, you're like, you don't feel that calcium ion related fatigue. Just like, and I was like, there's definitely a different feeling that happens on that very last grindy, super grindy rep overall. And I started noticing that on my, my chest, anything like I was doing chest pressing, if I'm doing that last super grindy rep, I'm like, what, why haven't I noticed that after all these years, like that super grindy, slow rep, and you're not going to get another one, that there's something definitely physiologically that happens on that rep that affects the rest of the workout. It's a real thing. So then when I started leaving it off, I noticed my training changes. So there's I think, I think that's likely to be a CNS fatigue phenomenon, to be honest. I um, think if, if, if that's the, I think that one could potentially be related to a higher expression of the pro-inflammatory cytokines that get released during the training. But I've that, never seen any data comparing. The, the issue is that most of the um, inflammatory response that we get during a workout, and we're not talking about post-workout inflammatory responses now. So you get... Um, inflammatory responses during a workout which yeah. contribute to central nervous CNN, system fatigue. CNS fatigue. Um, it's possible that um, those levels change according to um, proximities to failure or intensities of exercise, but we've got yeah. no data on that. We've, I've never seen anybody look at the way that so those inflammatory responses change. I was deep in that for a while looking at that and um, I want to say and I'd have to draw from memory on this is like it's a um, and you remember these, the pro-inflammatory cytokines that get released during your training, there is a, a rebound effect that causes a, um, um, anti-inflammatory effect, uh, afterwards. Um, so that's the, there's a, there's the effect and I have to go back and find this particular study that looks at those, but during, during the training itself, the whole thing of people, if you do heavy, big compounds that make you tired, that's your, the pro-inflammatory cytokines that are getting pushed out from doing those. And I, I think with larger compound exercises, you probably get a significantly higher expression of those pro-inflammatory cytokines to get released. And that's probably the CNS fatigue that they're talking about. They're feeling Absolutely, tired. Totally agree. The mysterious one, and we've talked about this offline before, the mysterious one is the way that you feel after a stretch position exercise compared to after a contract position exercise. So just comparing the difference between how you feel. That's not the after, same. That's not the same feeling, but happens. it's a different feeling. So if you do like um, lap pull downs versus, say, for example, chest supported rows, they feel totally different. Totally different. And it's re we've got no real data to explain why that might be the case. I've told you this before. I've tested this on myself because I love testing all of our theories that we look at physiologically and go in and smash myself with high volume on short exercise positions. And I feel totally fine the whole time. And I've done glutes and hamstrings and quads all in one day where I go in and I'm like, I'll do all these short position exercises to, to true existential paleolithic <laughs> failure <laughs> and, and like to where you can't get in, in another rep and everything. And I do and I'll do like five or six sets of like leg extensions, glute kickbacks, like lying uh, leg curls. And I to I feel fine. I feel like I can just keep going forever. And then what I'll do is right at the end, I'll do a long, long longer length muscle movement like hacks. And I'm done. Immediately after that set to failure, I'm done. I'm like, that's the workout. 
it feels completely different. I've been training for quite a few decades, so I do understand my body and the feedback that I'm getting from the workout very well. But I can go in and blast myself on high volume, short position exercises, get through the workout, not really feeling much going on. So I also think there's probably something there related to the degree of the cytokines that get expressed throughout the the body but also there is definitely something weirder that's going on there with those longer muscle links and the kind of the the feedback that you're getting so i think that even then there's probably i don't know at the central nervous system level if like we you know we talk about the fact that intracellular calcium causes excitation contraction coupling failure that's going on at the neuromuscular junction when we have too much calcium ion buildup that's not getting removed uh, from the cytoplasm so and i think that maybe we don't that's the why we don't oh i can't get that extra rep or that one rep i could or i fail or whatever and suddenly nobody's home on that rep but i also think there's probably something else physiologically going on there that that we don't maybe understand either but there's definitely a mechanism that almost causes you and your brain to go like yeah i don't want to do that next extra rep where with short position stuff it, you don't kind of have that same feedback it's very different no and I, I don't think we have really very much uh an understanding of why that is it's just really really interesting to notice it once you've once you've seen it you can't unsee it it's just something that you always notice when you're doing these kind of uh different we had that, yeah we had that conversation i was like i'm gonna go in i'm gonna do a butt ton i i did like 20 sets of legs but it was all short position stuff totally felt fine totally felt fine and i threw in a set of hacks at the end as soon as i did the set of hacks it was like a set of eight couldn't have done the ninth rep i'm like that's it i'm done immediately it was done i was like that's the workout but so, I think you can see it even if you just say, for example, comparing knee extensions with leg curls, you can absolutely see it. If you're doing seated leg curls, you are going to get that that weird kind of feeling that you're like, um, sort of, I'm kind of feeling like I'm about done now. Whereas you do the knee extensions, you don't get anything like that kind of feeling at all. Very, very weird. You can almost feel like you can always do another set of leg extensions. Yeah, absolutely. You do not get that with leg curls. It's just a completely different experience. Or with like an RDL or a deep leg press or I, I guess I was I guess I was trying to just move away from those bigger kind of full body exercises that people are probably, oh, yeah, but you're just tired because you're doing a big exercise. Well, no, you can literally compare this across, as I said before, um, lap pull down versus chest supported row, or you could do if I do a lap versus pull down, a leg curl. Right. Like if I do a lap pull down, if I train the lats with a lap pull down, I can do significantly fewer number of sets than if I do like a lat row. And then it affects the exercises that you do afterwards as well. If I do, yes, if I go much. in and do like chest supported row, I can do another few exercises afterwards. It's not going to trouble me. If I go in and do lap pull down straight away, then it's like doing something after that is now much more bothersome than, than it would have been if I'd done rows. And reduces the everything else that I'm going to do the rest of the workout. So when I think about when I set up those workouts, I'm like, if I'm doing a lap pull down through the frontal plane like that, I know that's going to have effect on the subsequent exercises that I'm doing afterwards, where if I'm doing like a lat row, if it's like one arm, it feels like I can do like just a bunch of those. And, and just to kind of stress here, we have no idea. <laughs> why this is happening or why we're just observing because this. a lot of people think that we're like the, some of the smartest people that do this whole thing doesn't mean we have an answer for everything kind of like the calves I'm gonna, i was going to make a post up on the calves the other day. like here's something we don't know 
but then that just yeah. causes more problems. I don't know what that is. We understand the pro-inflammatory cytokines from, you know, doing, you know, compound exercises and the expression that happens throughout sure. the workout and the central nervous system fatigue that it causes and that metabolite feedback uh, causes central nervous system fatigue and a reduction in motor unit recruitment. We do understand that, you know, intracellular calcium, you know, ions gonna, are going to cause a peripheral type of fatigue interference effect. And then that is going to cause the muscle damage that we're going to see that's going to be exacerbated over the following days and that inflammatory response is going to cause some central nervous system fatigue interference effects so forth and so on there's a multitude of these mechanisms that we understand and are well documented throughout the fatigue mechanisms but then there's some where we sit back and we put them into actual practical application and i'm like why is this happening chris and you're like i don't know but i feel the same thing so there's certain things there's definitely certain things that go on within these workouts that we don't have because i get that one asked all the time like why are the big compounds so much more fatiguing i'm like well because of the pro-inflammatory cytokines that cause cns uh, a reduction in uh, uh, central nervous system fatigue and motor unit recruitment so we, we we do understand those so we do understand if you're doing a bunch of high reps you're going to end up suffering from the same thing so there's a lot of different pathways that can cause very similar outcomes in terms of the production of what we're going to see in the workout and you know what that comes back to one of the things that i put there and you said we're going to add a rest day so the other fatiguing thing is i said so for you guys that, that have hit a plateau i said one of the things is if you've been doing high rep sets do increase your load and reduce your your reps back down to somewhere in the five to six rep range and kind of like chris and i were talking about right here at kind of a one rir ish level to alleviate both that peripheral fatigue that's going to happen from the intracellular calcium buildup. And um, the other thing is that you're not dealing with that metabolite related fatigue that's going to come with those higher reps. So I, I find it much easier to get an extra rep at that five or six rep range here or there over the course of a few weeks. I'm perfectly fine saying than trying to add an 18th rep to the one I've been getting 17. I just don't find those to be equally the same comparatively like even somebody go well you're adding a smaller percentage i'm like dude adding a sixth rep to a set of five to me is way easier than adding a 19th rep to a set of 18 that i've been doing i can't even imagine training with those kind of rep ranges it sounds a horrible experience it's like so <laughs> people say that all the time well, i've been doing oh we'll do sets of 15 on laterals i'm like why would i do 15 reps why would I do 15 reps on lateral? I used to do that stuff. I hated it then. The more I dove into physiology and I realized, I was like, I don't have to do 15 reps ever again. Well, screw that. I'm never doing a 15 rep set again. The only time I actually enjoyed that stuff was when I came out of powerlifting and I'd been doing sets of two, three, four for like eight years. And it was such a change to do higher reps that it was just nice just nice to not load the bar up to 700 pounds i i lived off walking lunges for like probably six months because i just did not feel like doing anything in the weight room with my legs after all those years of powerlifting. and i said i just want to do some walking lunges and i it felt good to get sore from that again and so the novelty of all of that was nice and i think that can have a place and you and i've talked about that too with rep ranges there's no novelty in terms of mechanistically what's going on with rep ranges, but mentally, if you've been burned on a rep range for a while, changing your rep range can be some can be the secret sauce to get you moving again. But it's not, and I have to always emphasize this: it is not because there's something novel mechanistically happening at that rep range. It's simply your motivation and the fact that you enjoy doing something different now is the is the key component. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, you know, I think that's that's definitely something for people to take into consideration. But, you know, ultimately, that's probably not something that the advanced lifter is going to be too troubled by. I mean, that's that's more of a um, a kind of an, an intermediate problem. I think the advanced lifters probably uh, kind of got to the point where they're highly motivated by their goals. I mean, um, you know, they're not they're not really looking for something to to amuse them rather than you know. Um, they're just focused on their training but in terms of like you know finishing these these kind of uh, this stimulus category off so we've talked about the one I think is most important which is you know you know are we actually matching the strength gain that we're capable of achieving with the strength gain that we're actually asking of ourselves but you know in terms of saying well are there any mechanistic explanations for why we might start to find that you know the the muscle growth that we've been achieving that's been enabling us to achieve certain strength gains is now yeah. dialing back and yeah. i think there's probably two really obvious ones and again we've probably mentioned both of these previously um the first is is, is maybe this this idea of not being able to uh, actually um reach high enough levels of recruitment to train the muscle fibers that are capable of growing because as I've explained before, what we think is probably happening is that as you progress over time, your muscle fibers will reach plateaus in terms of their maximum possible size, according to something called the size principle of striated muscle. Now, the size principle of striated muscle basically just says that muscle fibers will reach a maximum possible size that's determined by their oxidative capacity. So ultimately, if you have a very, very oxidative muscle fiber, it will plateau, it will max out and not be able to increase in size anymore when it reaches a fairly small size. Whereas if you've got a very glycolytic muscle fiber, glycolytic. then it will carry on increasing up to a much larger size. This is basically why, um, you know, we can have muscle fibers at the top end of the high threshold motor unit pool, which are very, very glycolytic, that are actually much, much bigger than the muscle fibers lower down the, the motor unit pool. So if we're progressing over time, then the muscle fibers that are lower down in sequence, the ones that are closer to the bottom end of the high threshold motor unit pool, they're going to max out earlier. And you're going to be left basically as an advanced lifter with the only fibers you're capable of growing with the ones right at the very top. They're going to be the ones that still have capacity to grow because they haven't reached their plateaus yet, whereas the ones lower down have. Now, ultimately, what that means pay, is the pay more... Attention, pay attention, children. This is the important part. The more advanced you get, the more you need to focus on, incre on, on achieving really high levels of motor unit recruitment. So uh, ultimately, if you've been doing an exercise which maybe has quite a lot of... Um, uh, kind of CNS fatigue elements to it. Maybe it's you're doing higher repetitions. Maybe you're doing short rests. Maybe you are um, perhaps using exercise with a lot of muscle mass involved, like a squat or a, uh, an RDL or something. Then you're going to find that the level of recruitment that you can reach is lower than if you did, say, um, single leg seated leg curls compared to the RDL or single leg knee extensions compared to the, uh, the, the I, You know, the since I love practical application here, I'm going to have everybody do this, Chris, when they listen to this. And this is something that um, go do alternating dumbbell curls and curl them at the same time and then put one of the dumbbells down and then curl with one arm. That's such a great example um, because really we should be seeing, uh, you know, a couple more reps done when you're not. You doing... will literally, okay, you can go to failure. You can go to existential paleolithic failure. failure. <laughs> that's that's going to be a new one, existential paleolithic failure. You can go to existential paleolithic failure doing um, dumbbell curls where you're doing them at the same time, where you're curling at the same time with the dumbbells. And when you hit existential paleolithic failure, you, if you switch to alternating, you'll eke out one or two extra reps right there. Like after you've hit 
the paleolithic existential failure when you're doing it at the same time and then immediately go to alternating you'll knock out one or two more reps why is that chris since according to all the noobs on tiktok and online you already hit existential paleolithic failure why are we now still able to actually get another curl by just switching it over to doing a unilateral curl so basically when you're using more muscle mass in an exercise you are going to be um, sending central motor command to multiple places at the same time and your brain will register all of that central motor command as a effort perception and so you'll reach your maximum tolerable perception of effort at a, a, a certain point if you then sort of take away some of that muscle mass that you've been using and now suddenly you've not got to exert that same level of effort anymore to the extra central motor commands because you've got less central motor command being generated so ultimately you know task failure is always about reaching a maximum level tolerable perception of effort yep. and a major contributor to our uh, effort using, perception is using the more muscle command. mass yeah. so if you have more muscle mass involved you are creating more central motor command and therefore you're going to hit task failure earlier so that is such a great example, actually. That's, that's a really good one because it's That very, is actually my favorite practical application because when I have guys do it and then they're like, why was I able to get that other one? I'm like, because now you're able to allocate more motor unit recruitment to that side because you're not asking more muscles to be involved in the, the exercise. It's so, really good. It's much better than the example I've previously been giving to people, which is to say, do a um, five or six rep max knee extension with both legs and then at another time do it with a single leg and what you should find is that if you you know add the two single leg numbers together or just double one single leg exercise right. you'll find that it's actually very different from the you'll actually get a higher load than you would do in the in the in the two legs version together and that's called the the, the bilateral force deficit and it's very very well described uh, it's very 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 uh, well there's documented. a ton of research out there on the bilateral force this deficit. is not us pulling stuff out of the air uh, <laughs> very 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 clearly documented very very good uh, set of data and it's basically because you can achieve high levels of recruitment when you're using less um ask me that and they would they would be like why is it when i do if i do them at the same time i'm using so much less weight and i'm like because you're asking you're you're actually asking your brain to use more muscles right which is going to cause which creates hey this is more difficult i'm having to use more muscles so this is actually a more difficult task and then when i say oh i have to use less muscle mass the brain says oh i can allocate greater motor unit recruitment over there because this is less of a difficult task to do so it, it's kind of thought it used to be thought of in strength training the more difficult to being done was like the better the exercise which is why people would they would say right in these like these certification courses you have to go from doing a very stable exercise to standing on a bosu ball because that bosu ball required more it was a harder task to do by the central nervous system which is true which means we're going to have less motor unit recruitment doing it so which is why nobody's squatting 700 pounds on a bosu ball right so but there's you know plenty of people that squat 700 pounds standing on a flat ground and this so, is a really interesting point because it again both well that point and the previous one all of these points that we're making at the moment are fitting perfectly with the the, the podcast that we did recently about uh, muscular failure that we keep referring to as existential paleolithic failure um the, the, this what we're talking about these concepts that we're talking about now are impossible to explain 
if you think that failure is caused by something that the muscle is doing. If you think that failure is caused by something the muscle is doing, then ultimately you're not going to be able to say, well, why does failure occur at different points? When That's I'm using actually, I don't know different... why I didn't just like, of it's course, such a great illustration. another example of the fact that you've been doing your bicep curls this whole time and guys go, well, you fail because you can't produce more force. Oh, well, let me put this one dumbbell down and just start curling with the one arm and now I can do two and three more reps. Why is my bicep now able to produce more force? It's because it's about the maximal tolerable perception of effort. And it has nothing to do with your biceps not being able to produce force. I'm going to make that pose. I'm going to make that pose. That's a really cool point. Yes, because that's how I do. And anytime I do alternating dumbbell curls, um, I will do them at the same time. And then I will finish up doing them one arm at a time after I hit uh, paleolithic failure. So that's pretty much how I do it. And I just thought, I thought about it. The point will be the same as well. I mean, if you if you were to like you've given the example of changing the amount of muscle mass, but if you were to change someone's stability, so maybe for example they were sitting with a, um, a with I do a, it, a I back do it sitting with a back. No, I do it sitting with a back support, and then I do. And then if you were to then have somebody come along when you got to a certain point, and say for example you were doing um, a seated shoulder press mm-hmm. with dumbbells, and you didn't have the shoulder. The, the back support to begin with and then yep. somebody actually came along and provided uh, moved the seat up to support you when you were you'd approaching. be able to continue doing more reps that would be another example where you could say well stability is contributing to task failure occurring earlier or later exactly or the lack, same way lack of stability exactly. lack of stability contri- contributes yeah. to you getting to paleolithic existential failure faster so what we're saying here is that there could be a scenario where your plateau is occurring because the exercise that you've selected or the rep range you've selected or the Ooh, rest well, periods you've I selected even think about that. So aren't allowing plateau, you to achieve yes. high enough levels of recruitment. Your plateau could also be existing simply because the exercise you've selected has a limiter built in on the degree of stability that you're supplying it. You need if, 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 you're, if you're reaching a plateau, you need to do a, an exercise where you check what your motor unit recruitment capacity is on the exercise you're doing you need to do an audit of how close to a maximum level of recruitment am i achieving am i using a big compound uh, and am i don't have a sufficient level of stability and is my rep range too high and my rest period too short potentially you would not be plateauing if you're actually accessing higher levels of motor unit recruitment with you know a much more stable exercise with plenty of rest periods and high, heavier That's loads a, it's a super interesting thought right because let's say somebody felt like they hit a plateau on their dumbbell curls and i looked at them and they were doing they were doing simultaneous dumbbell curls instead of alternating dumbbell curls and i go okay well next time you go in do them alternating right because they're literally leaving stimulating reps on the table but a hundred, hundred percent. So if, if, if the problems compound, you may actually not be getting very high levels of recruitment that you could otherwise obtain. You know, right. there's a potential for actually a qualitative rather than just a quantitative difference. Right. So I guess that's the other thing is like, it would, sometimes we go through and troubleshoot these things. That's something I don't even think about because I'm going back to generally like the fatigue factor and the stimulate, stimulus factor and how we set up our progressive overload. But the other thing just could be how you're performing the exercise itself. It's a very unstable exercise or there's a more stable version that you can switch to. Then you can immediately move past that plateau. And like my dumbbell curl example, I really do feel like that's like the easiest one because as we said with the, the failure stuff, if I'm doing them at the same time and I hit quote unquote failure, 
it has nothing to do with my biceps not being able to reduce force because I immediately go to an alternating version right then. I don't mean, I mean, with no rest, I can, I can get some more reps with it. Right. So it's not because I'm leveraging it better or this or that better. It's because simply I can allocate a greater degree of signal for motor unit recruitment to those biceps. So again, as something you've said to that should tell everybody listening, it has nothing to do with your muscles not being able to produce force. It is all about your maximal tolerable perception of effort. And once we make something, we reduce um, how hard something feels and that reduction of how hard something feels, we're able to have a greater degree of motor unit recruitment again. It always comes back to that. So no difference than when we reduce load. All of a sudden, well, we've reduced how hard that thing feels and we can continue doing reps. It's We're not training past failure. Exactly. I mean, this is this is just really uh, kind of neat the way this fits with the, the, the topic that we discussed recently in, in terms of muscular failure. But yeah, I think uh, motor unit recruitment is a really important one, just to kind of emphasize again. Uh, that's what you're talking about there is like getting back to doing, if you're at a plateau, been doing the big compounds, you've been doing all of these things. And then if the limiter is going to come back to we're limiting motor unit recruitment, then we have to be able to accurately assess, is there a way I can get a higher degree of motor unit recruitment yes. for that particular muscle to get passes plateau exactly it could literally be that you've just plateaued the sizes of the muscle fibers lower down the high threshold motor unit pool and you need to focus on accessing more of the muscle fibers at the top end the only way you're going to do that is by starting to make the exercise more stable uh, maybe reducing the amount of muscle mass looking again at rep ranges looking at rest periods those kind of things to make sure that you're maximizing motor unit recruitment in a way that is going to give you those uh, ability to progress again and then the other possibility, so if motor unit recruitment is, is kind of one uh, mechanistic reason why we might be plateauing, the other one is um, if we look at the regional hypertrophy. So this is something that basically is neuromechanical matching based. What we're saying here is that every exercise... I, I was going to ask you about this one. So do, do we get to a point where we've essentially more or less the way I would describe maxed out our leverages at particular joint angles? Well... There's, there's two there's two stages to this one, I think. So the first stage is like, yeah, you can basically, every exercise is going to train one particular area of a muscle more than any other area of a yeah, muscle. And yeah. that's going to be varied. Some muscles have a lesser degree of that. Other muscles have a much greater degree of that. There are some muscles that are really, really segmented and they really kind of use very, very specific regions for specific uh, joint angle ranges of motion and yeah. forces at different points. And the issue is though that the way that the principle of neuromechanical matching works is it always sends central motor command to whatever muscle or region of a muscle has the best leverage. If you do an exercise repeatedly for a very long period of time, then the region of the muscle that that exercise um, you know, kind of benefits most from using is going to grow more than any of the other regions of that muscle. Now, the way that the principle of neuromechanical matching works is that it always sends activation in proportion to the leverages or the difference in leverages really i should say so if you develop one region of the muscle much more than any other region of that muscle then that's going to compound over time and your brain is just going to keep sending activation to that exact same area and the this bigger is, uh, it gets relative here. to other areas the bigger yeah. the problem you've got so you end up in a situation where if you've been training with an exercise for a very long period of time, you could actually get to a point where you max out that area. Your brain is not going to then go, oh, well, that area is maxed out. I better use a different area instead. It's going to go, I'm just going to keep using that area because it's really, really good at this task. So we, we had a, we had a um, um, 
a mystery buster with this a while back, if you remember, with the leg extension stuff. So there was a, was this a Swedish study or a Scandinavian study? I think it was a Swedish study, and they were looking at EMG because people went back and forth forever looking at EMG studies looking at the at the the quadriceps would say this does this and this does that and this does that and then you you sent me one and you're like actually what's going on is just the proportionate size of the quadriceps so what happens is because the leverages are the same for the quadriceps throughout knee extension i mean the leverages are virtually the same throughout the entire joint angle range of motion what's happening is is that on a person per person basis it's allocating motor unit recruitment simply based off which muscle is larger between their vasti muscles or the rec fem or whatever. So they're going, the rec fem is only trained in that, so it obviously tends to grow more than the other ones. But what's happening is with the motor unit recruitment, they would say, turn toes this way, turn toes that way. We don't find anything this way, straight up and down is this and that. And it's really an individual dependent thing. And who whoever has a proportionally larger degree of quads simply just keeps allocating motor unit recruitment for that division of their vasti muscles of the rec femur or whatever when they're using the leg extension machine. And I'm like, oh, okay, that makes that makes more sense than any of these other studies where they're like, what's going on with these toe positions? When in all actuality, it just comes back to the fact that your body just goes, which muscle has the best leverage, but which one also can produce the most force here? So let's actually use that one because that's the most efficient. Yeah, and we basically get what's technically known as a Matthew effect. We basically just get whatever muscle or region of the muscle is best, kind of has best leverage and leverage is related to size. You know, whatever whatever muscle that, or region of a muscle has best leverage is going to be the one that continues to get the activation. The bigger it gets relative, relative to the other <laughs> regions or muscles, um, because some people don't seem to understand that neuromechanical matching is always about relative leverages, not about absolute leverages. So um, the, better the, <laughs> the better the relative leverage that this region has to the other regions of the muscle, the brain will just allocate more centromotor ground accordingly. So you end up in a situation where the exercise you're doing is just completely dedicated to growing this region. Well, if that region starts to get maxed out, then you could have capacity to still grow that muscle if you were able to train the other regions instead. So this is, I think, ultimately the the kind of... But that also ties back in what we're talking about with motor unit recruitment, right? It's like we have to get back to actually, we have to find a way to actually regionally train the different part of that muscle, which means we're going to be changing the joint angle, different resistance profile. There has to be something that we have to do in our training where we say at that point, we're like, okay, if I've been doing dumbbell, because here's all I got, guys, I've been doing dumbbell bench press forever. Why you'd be doing that forever? I don't know. But I got guys doing dumbbell bench press forever. I'm like, dude, if you've been doing dumbbell bench press for 10 years, you, you know what I mean? Like you've gotten everything you're going to get out of that guy. So if your pecs grew really well from that, but you have really crappy triceps or whatever, uh, then you clearly got to find a way to train your triceps, you know, without your pecs involved. Uh, but like you were talking about, like regionally, if we're doing this one exercise and this one region gets maxed out, grows really fast, and as you talked about, and we have a, let's say we even have a higher degree of glycolytic fibers that exist within that region, because we've seen that within regions and subdivisions of different regions where even like it's with the biceps, well, in the biceps, this one subdivision or subregion of the biceps has, tends to have more fast switch muscle fibers than, say, another one, and that's very individual dependent. Then that person goes, well, my biceps haven't grown and I've been doing the same two bicep exercises for the past three years. I'm like, 
well, then you'll probably have to train them in a different way to access a different region and hypertrophy that different region. And even then, the amount of hypertrophy that kind of gonna is going to occur will be relatively small. But what you want is over time is to develop all of the regions as much as you possibly can. And that's where you kind of max out your hypertrophy. This almost kind of goes back into covering the the one podcast we did about eking out the, that last three to five pounds over the last however many years of your training is that you're in order to kind of maximize your your physique um, completely it really does come back to you're going to have to worry about motor unit recruitment like training a muscle at um, different links different resistance profiles using different exercises because we have to essentially activate motor unit recruitments that we have not been using and then we have to hypertrophy those fibers over a given period of time and then we do that with enough different variations over a period of time that's how we get that ultimate um, like degree of muscularity and, and physique development that we're seeking and when we talk about coming back into the plateau thing that also means that you kind of have to be willing to say after you've done your your homework and shooting say well did i add did i add a rest day did i reduce my rep uh range and increase my loading did i do change over from going to failure to doing a one rir method uh did i find more stable compound variations like these are all the things that I really feel like that you kind of have to troubleshoot to say, well, if you re- re- remove the fatigue aspect, I can get back to recruiting those motor units again because now I'm not fatigued and I can I can get to those. And then um, the other thing is the same thing is if I'm not experiencing metabolite related fatigue within the workout itself, like I was experiencing, I can once again get back to the motor unit recruitment. It's all weird how much it comes back to getting to the motor unit recruitment part. And then if I am using a more stable exercise than I've been using, or I go to a bi or a unilateral version rather than a bilateral version, and I can get more motor unit recruitment, then I can get to growing again and get past these plateaus. So a lot of times these guys don't, I don't think they have kind of the, the tools in the their tool shed to to go through kind of this this process of breaking these things apart to say how do I alleviate fatigue how do I get more motor unit recruitment choose better uh, stable exercises use a unilateral version for a while do any of these things that will allow me to or train the muscle at a completely different joint angle because I've already exhausted those resources so I, those are kind of the things I went down through literally in my head. You and I actually went through the exact same list when I went through my head of here's the things that you would need to look at in your training to say, if you are at a, um, if you're basically fatigued and not recovering from your fatigue, is, is are you at a plateau or are you just having bad workouts? Um, and if you're having bad workouts, then you need to alleviate the fatigue that's causing the bad workouts to see if the plateau, you get past the plateau. If you're at a plateau, because of the other reasons where you've already maxed out, say, your potential for size in those muscles at whatever, then you have to train it at a different joint. I go, you got something else you want to add? I can see that expression on your face. I'm just, no, it's not at all. It's just the terminology. I'm just wondering, you, when you talk that through, I wondered whether we could clarify the terminology. I want, but Because we've got a progressive overload plateau, which is just... Um, not managing to make a progressive overload from one workout to the next. Then we've kind of got a um, bad workout, which is saying it's not actually a plateau at all. It's just that you had a bad workout. Okay, that terminology is kind of, I think, makes sense. Then we've got like a... That's fatigue. a good question. Not Again, I always have to say not to cut you off because people get me in the car. 
keep your train of thought there, but I think that's the first question to ask, right? Am I at, did I have, am I at a plateau or did I have a bad workout? That's Absolutely. The first. That's okay, the first good. question. So moving right. on from the first, the first question is, did I have a bad workout or am I dealing with a plateau? Okay. If I'm dealing with a plateau, it's a progressive overload plateau in the sense yep. that I've not managed to achieve an improvement in, um, you know, the reps or the weight uh, that I was planning to make. The next question is, is it a fatigue plateau? Or is it a stimulus plateau? So am I dealing with a fatigue problem or am I dealing with a stimulus problem? Um, the fatigue obviously is kind of related, as you said earlier, to that overreaching idea. And, you know, we can kind of put that in its own box and, and deal with it. On the <laughs> stimulus side, we've actually kind of got this idea where we say, it's, if it's a stimulus plateau, is it the fact that the stimulus I'm getting is there, but it's too small? And therefore, I need to actually adjust my progression model if I want to see it, or I just need to be patient. Either of those are going to be, you know, solutions to that particular problem. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, it's going to be a motor unit recruitment problem. So I've got a true, what we might call a true or an adaption plateau is probably the best term. Ah, it's like an adaption that. plateau. So it's a plateau that actually Did is of the adaption. Did you just come up with that just now? Did you come I came up, up with that while you were talking, which is why I was kind of waving my head around in the air trying to kind wow. of capture all of that terminology. That's kind of bullshitty that you came up with that good of a term just now. I, it's an adaption plateau. I, I actually never, I feel like I came up with that somehow and you stole it from me. That's really good. That's really an, an adaptation. So it's not plateau. a progressive overload plateau. Well, it is. It is a progressive overload plateau, but you have to go down another level and say, is it a fatigue plateau or is it an adaption plateau? But the reality actually, is... Chris, actually, Chris, as we kind of brainstorm through this whole thing, you could literally do an article on here's plateaus that exist. So if it's a fatigue plateau, then here's the, the solution for the fatigue plateau, right? Yes, if exactly. An, if exactly. it's an adaptation plateau, is it a progressive I actually teach, plateau? I actually, I've been teaching this in my mentorship course as a, as a troubleshooting guide. I've already been doing this. It's, it's a really, really interesting way. But what I haven't done, and this is new, is underneath the idea of a stimulus plateau, which is what I've been teaching, uh, underneath this idea of stimulus plateau, you have this first element, which is just the stimulus is creating an adaption. It's just the adaption is really small and not noticing it because your progressive overload model is too aggressive. The next level down from that is to say, well, I am not actually getting an adaption anymore. I've reached a true adaption plateau. True is the horrible word, but I've reached an adaption plateau. Um, I, I really don't like it when I, I hear that word in the context of any physiological environment. I think it doesn't really that's one of our pet peeves is true muscular is. failure, true, true, true anything. True as anything. As if yes, that there's a false exactly. version of it. As it. Yeah, exactly. It implies that there's a false version. <laughs> so, so we've got this kind of um, sort of adaption plateau, which means that either we're not achieving a high enough level of recruitment to trigger the adaption, or we're trying to train a region of the muscle that can't grow anymore because it's maxed out. So we it's have to now train. Out, yeah. yeah. So the two solutions basically are go down the increased recruitment route, which is about stability, rest periods, uh, rep ranges, um, muscle mass, what's and the, the exercise. What's, the, all those lim what's the limiter on, on glycolytic fiber types that they can't actually add any more myofibrils? It's exactly the same. So any any muscle fiber no, is, no, is no, limited. No, no, that's not what I'm asking. Like I'm, I'm saying this is more me just like prodding you. It's like what's the, when we get to a, a glycolytic fiber type that has really maxed out its, its, its genetic potential size, what's that? What's the limiter? What's the ceiling that it's, being, that it's pushing up against that it, it can't add any more radial growth? Uh, exactly the same as it is for an oxidative fiber. It's the size principle of striated muscle. I know. Why can't it, it get there's larger? There's no difference. Why can't it get larger? 
Are you asking me to explain the size principle of striated muscle? Um, no, I'm, okay. saying, I'm saying I'm saying what is the there's what's the what's the constraint? So the constraint is the, um, the, the the mismatch or the match between the the um, oxygen supply um, to the muscle fiber and um, what that muscle fiber is using in terms of oxygen in any given muscular contraction. So it's the ratio between those two things. If you can't supply the muscle fiber with the necessary oxygen, then it won't grow. Uh, because if it did, then it would start to go um, essentially necrotic because you would actually run out of uh, the necessary um, oxygen inside the muscle fiber and it would it would it would not function so it doesn't let you do that and um, therefore it stays at that maximum possible size the same for any glycolytic oxidative or any other kind of muscle fiber they're all the same yeah i, I know i was mostly prodding you about a podcast that we had talked about preliminary because there was a bunch of there was a bunch of really weird esoteric reasons why the, the fiber a fiber size would get maxed out <laughs> Oh really? I I don't know. I I didn't. As you know, I don't. Um, well, what was don't the old actually... one? Do you remember what the old one was? Do you remember what the, what the old theory was? The old before theory. the size principle of striated muscle. No, it's pretty yeah. old. I don't think there is any yeah. other. Oh, no, there was another workable. one. No, I don't think so. No, there was another really? one that was postulated. I I I'm I'm. You got remember, me there. Remember, remember what was the one that was postulated for a <laughs> no, while? No, you got me. I don't know what you're talking about. The one that was postulated for a while was that all fiber size muscle size was going to be relatively the limiter was going to be the myelonuclear domain size and that and um, really yeah, is yes. that really postulated as a as a as a as a hundred percent a hundred percent there were whole training theories based off around the fact that <laughs> the idea was i'm not sure that was in the literature I didn't say it was in literature. Okay. I said, okay. No, no, no. I wasn't speaking from the literature. Okay. Well, that's why you got me then. <laughs> no, that's why I got you because you. Well, I mean, you have to remember that though, because of the satellite cell uh, proliferation theory to myonuclei to myonuclear domain was like some type of a limiter in order to us uh, grow. It larger. is in older people, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, you can get massively depleted satellite cell populations in older people, and they just can't grow. I mean, absolutely. But I, I just don't. See see that being relevant to uh, younger people. That was the thing for a while was that is that we could, there was, okay, so remember with muscle damage, there was the tie-in to the fact that we had a significantly higher degree of satellite cell response, cellular cell proliferation into a higher degree of myonuclei, which would increase the myonuclear domain, which would actually increase the hypertrophy potentiation that could occur due to the increase in myonuclear domain. Of course, that ended up being backwards. That ended up being backwards because remember, it's like the way you think of the myonuclear domain is governing, you know, the degree of muscle protein synthesis. It's however it's being allocated in there. Well, that's so that the same was, as capillarization. People have got capillarization backwards as well. People think uh, of capillarization is something that supplies uh, the capacity for the muscle fiber to grow. It's the other way around. The muscle fiber. Okay, so now we're back on the same probably, page. So you now we're back on, on the same page. The, the, the capillarization exactly. So that there's that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to lead you into that. It's like so. What's the limiter there? And you're like, it's the principle of. Um, the muscle fiber is the limiting factor. What <laughs> happens around the muscle fiber is is basically pulled by that increase in size. Um, the muscle fiber is the is 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 is, is limited by the size principle of striated muscle. The size principle of striated muscle. Anybody out there want to know why you can't grow muscle larger? There, the, that's the principle you need to go. Muscle learn. fiber uh, for a muscle fiber is always limited by the size principle of striated muscle. The 
everything we've been talking about today is how, why the muscle itself might uh, actually reach a plateau. We, all of that stuff that we've been talking about today is modifiable. We can deal with that stuff. Yes. What you can't do is make a muscle fiber grow bigger than its ability to function. It will not do that. If, if a muscle fiber can process oxygen faster than you can deliver it, it will basically just not let you do that. Um, so it'll max out. Right. So, yeah, that's what I was getting at because there was a bunch of bunch of wild theories that I had to sit through lately um, about all of these things, you know, stuff surrounding. I don't know why you do that. I really do. Because I think it's funny because I go listen to it and I just, it's like a comedy show. Like nobody, <laughs> everybody else thinks they're talking about science and I just feel like I'm watching a comedy show. All right. I, so I, I, so I, I actually think this ended up being an incredible episode because we actually brain, because it's like, brainstorm through a bunch of really cool things and i hope everybody very got actionable as well yeah yeah so so from for somebody who's trying to get through that's that's first off number one to chris for us to wrap this one up and go i think it's really important to delineate between am i at a plateau or just that i have a bad workout and the other part there i wanted to add to that too is make sure you're very cognizant of of the of truly and i'm going to use this word now in the real sense so no laughing but be cognizant of the existential things in your life because everything of like life stress, work stress, family stress, relationship stress, all of these things will play a factor in you and I had so a really cool conversation about this offline about the fact that it's all tied into the same central nervous system. So if you're, you know, stressed at work or you're stressed at, at um you know you're having to do highly uh, cognizant task at work or in your life or whatever that can play a part in detracting from your workouts from your the performance that you have in your workouts it's all tied into the same thing so be cognizant number one of the fact is hey I'm, am i going through a stressful time in my life am i going through a breakup am i moving into a new house am i getting a new job all of these the, these things can have impacts on your workout so during those times probably not a great time to assess whether or not you're you're having a plateau and just you know going through the motions and getting your workouts in and saying i'm probably not going to have barn burner workouts at this time but if none of that's going on um and you are handling life stress well you don't have any of that kind of stuff then be honest have a critical assessment honesty uh kind of thing with yourself where you say hey am i having a plateau or did I just have a bad workout or even maybe two bad workouts, two bad workouts in the course of a lifetime, not uncommon at all to have a couple of bad workouts in a row, depending you know, on your life and what's going on, but you can have two bad workouts. Uh, and we didn't really even touch on your nutrition, but if you're, if you, if you're not, uh, Joe talked about this and I, he made a point to say, Hey, it's probably a good idea to fuel up, you know, with your carbs before you go into your training session, just to make sure you got your bases covered there. So you and I don't cover the nutrition stuff a whole, whole lot, but even in terms of a plateau, if you've been training fasted, try training fed, man. Even if you just get like a bowl of oatmeal, like an, you know, like a protein shake before you go in 30 minutes or whatever, to see if that has an effect on your training. Um, I do find that having um, uh, cyclic dextrin, uh, cluster dextrin, however people want to say it, with my training, whether it's placebo or not, I do find it makes a difference in my performance. But come back to and assess whether or not, hey, I had a bad day or um, I'm at a plateau. And then, Chris, from there, the, the ones I would that actually, I would actually put that um, that that nutrition point, I would put that under the, under the motunic 
recruitment category because mm-hmm. technically that's what you're doing. Yep. Um, you're, you're alleviating. I feel like a, everything we talked about almost always came back to motivating recruitment today, right? Many things do. Many things do. Right? Many things do. So the motivating recruitment, because the, 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 there's a, there's an effort type feedback for when the body says that you're, yes, you're low exactly, glycogen, exactly, it also exactly. causes a reduction in motor yeah. recruitment as well. So if that's the case, and that can be for people who are getting ready for a show, you shouldn't be worried about hitting, about, about plateaus if you're getting ready for a show or you're super hypocaloric. If that's your case, don't be asking why I'm at a plateau. I'm like, shut up. You're in a calorie deficit trying to get shredded. You're not trying to break PRs right now. So... If you're having, if you had a bad workout, the difference is having a bad workout being at a plateau. So let's move past that. The, the first assessment from there is what, Chris? Fatigue, Fatigue, right? Right. So we check that by giving ourselves easily, easily. The easiest way to do it is just to give ourselves an extra day of rest. That 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 I think works pretty much. <laughs> and the board. if you give yourself that extra day of rest, don't go back to what you were doing. Before. And if you give yourself the extra day of rest and you suddenly manage to make progress where you weren't making progress before, do not then just do your previous workout plan. You need to change it. You have been given information by the universe. Use the information appropriately. And we're laughing because we just see it all the time. People take a rest day or they do a deload and then they suddenly start making progress and they just go straight back to what they were doing before oh man that one always crushes me man it was like i was like well take an extra rest day off then they go oh man i crush it whatever and two or three weeks later they'll come back and be like i'm back at that same spot i'm like well did you keep that rest day in and they're like i just went back to doing what i was doing okay yeah so so Uh, if it's not fatigue if it's not fatigue, then it's got to be a stimulus problem. And if it's a stimulus problem, then it could be a progression model problem, first and foremost. So it could be that you're trying to progress faster than your adaptions are creating strength gains. So maybe you need to either just be patient or you need to change your progression model. Yeah. How do you, Chris, I think I've brought this up before and you usually describe it. What is your your uh, slow man progression model? I'm gonna call it so slow the man. Patient, the patient lifter model. No, is, is slow man. Slow man progression model is basically um, you start out with three sets of um, exactly the same number of reps. Um, I generally start with either four or five reps, and you do those. And you should be aiming for about. I know you don't like two RIR, but I generally aim for two RIR on my first of those three sets. And it sort of feels like it maybe gets close to one RIR for the last set, but it depends on your rest period and depends on the exercise. It depends on various things, but you're generally aiming for two RIR on the first of those three sets and not closer than one RIR for the last one. And then basically every time you go in the gym, you add one rep on whichever work, whichever of those three sets you haven't uh, previously added a rep on. So you start out with three sets of four or three sets of five. And the next workout you do a six and two fives. You go in again, you do two sixes and a five. You go in again and you do three sixes. And then maybe you work up to three sets of seven. So it takes a very long time. And then when you've got to the end of that block and you've done three sets of seven, you then add a little bit more weight and you can drop down back to uh, the fives again and start again. So five through to seven or four through to six, either of those I think works really, really well. And it's a super, super slow progression model. Slow man progression model. It's fine. Works, works, works like a charm. I do, something again, similar. I do something similar with my yoga buds. So how I have them set up, it's very similar. It's um, I will have them do um, the first week. I have them do a week of uh, – seven um 
it's a uh, no, it's eight, eight reps, one RAR. Um, and then uh, let me see. I have to remember how I did it. It's seven reps, one RAR, and then on the second set, uh, it's seven reps, and then the last set, it's a, a max set. So however many reps that you can get. And then uh, the next week, it's eight, eight reps, uh, one RAR. Um, and I have to go back in through. The, the way I had it set up is like every three weeks you add load, and that's it. So there'll be two weeks where you change the, the, the overall rep scheme, and then there's in the third week you'll add load. And you go back through it for two more weeks. But I can't remember if I do it 8-1-R, I think it's 8-1-I-R, and then 7-1-R-I-R, and then 8-1-I-R. That's what I think that's right. I Maybe. think the method I was describing is quite a bit slower than yours. I think I'm generally Yours is still to... slower than mine. Yours yeah, is still I think it doesn't mine. really add load for like nine weeks at a time. It's very, very slow. Yeah. I would be so bored. <laughs> the thing is, you always know that you're heading in the right direction. You know, it's true. Like, that's 100. I, I never think really. So for doubt. me, so one of the things that, that I have changed because I, even though I'm like, I'm actually not that hard headed about training. Like training, if somebody says this is more productive, I'll, I'll try it. But, um, the what I have noticed is that um, the reason why I'm okay with I don't really care about plateaus is because I get uh, very. Uh, motivated to go into just try to simply be a rep range for say weeks or months at a time not everybody likes that it's like you said for you if you don't go in and you're not able to there's there's got to be something moving um like that's very frustrating for you for me i really enjoy a challenge of i'm hitting six 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 to this and i have to work very hard to get to that seven rep for me personally that's very motivating so i think what's interesting also in this conversation is that there's no progression uh, model that is going to make every single person happy either is like they you have to be happy with the, your approach to training so for when i was younger for years i had this most simple approach i would pick a weight that i could get for eight reps and when i could get 12 reps with it i would increase the load so that means i would be staying with the same load for a very long time that would drive me nuts Right. See, that would drive you nuts. For me, like that was super rewarding because I would do my couple of warm-up sets and I would go one all-out set and then I'm trying to add one rep to that set and that's it. And then that was how I built pretty much like just a basic double progression model all throughout my teens. I just kept it super simple. So that was just something I learned in the magazines. And it was just to add a rep here, add a little bit of load there. And I always, for me, the mental aspect of just beating that one more rep was very easy in other words i just knew i had to add a rep so. I mean, ultimately progressive overload is what we're aiming for and however we get there is largely yeah, academic exactly, just, exactly we have to get there yep. um and all we're really saying here is that in the context of a stimulus plateau it might be the case that actually you're still creating a necessary adaption it's just that you can't see it translating into a strength game because you're asking for a strength game that's too large. Now, how you then deal with that problem is individual. You can deal with it by just sitting on it, or you can deal with it by, um, you know, changing the, the progression model to something that's easier. Either way, it's, it's fine. I mean, you're going to get to where you need to go. But the point is it differentiates itself from a true 
a true an adaption plateau, um, <laughs> an existential paleolithic plateau. Paleolithic plateau. It, it differentiates itself. There actually from, was from a paleolithic plateau. plateau where they didn't exist. The paleolithic era ended. That was the plateau. There is a paleolithic. <laughs> All these dinosaurs running around on the plateau. Yeah. They're like, fuck, okay. man, that's it. That's the end of it. We don't get to go anymore. So we got the paleolithic plateau that actually did happen. Existentially, it was no more. <laughs> so this, this stimulus plateau is divided into 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 non-adaption plateaus and adaption plateaus. So what we just talked about is a non is a non-adaption Dude, plateau. Dude, I think is I just it, gave you a whole. Happening. I think I just gave you a whole new Patreon medium thing. It is to definitely like, a plug, thing. It's definitely plug, a plug thing. out there like this. It actually yeah. is really nice because it, it gives you practical troubleshooting things that you can look at. Like this yeah. wasn't wasn't just one of those reach around sessions where we're talking about principles and physiology. This was actually a hey, how do you troubleshoot these things? And this is actually a real practical application kind of setting. So it's been very cool. Uh, for us to go over. So wrapping it up. Oh, last thing. And I, well, yeah, I so adaption plateaus, they could be either recruitment-based or they could be regional um, yep. muscle size-based. That's the what we would describe as adaption plateaus, which is interesting because that's what most people think of when they think about plateaus. But it, we've actually gone through a whole load of other possibilities before we've even got here. Mm-hmm. You know, but actually, those are the only two physiological mechanisms that I can think of that would cause adapt, an actual adaption plateau rather than just a progressive overload plateau. Yeah, the adaptation plateau. I think that's what most people, that's the first place they go yeah, to, right? It is, but it's they the last place I would look. It's the last place I would I think it's the last place. If you go through the, the troubleshooting model, we need to mm-hmm. flesh this out to where it's actually the plateau troubleshooting model. And like, boom, the adaptation plateau is actually the last one you're going to get yes. to. And Absolutely. it's the first one. What's weird is as we, we've kind of talked this out in troubleshoot through the, this podcast, that is the first place everyone goes to. And it's actually the last one you need to get to. It's like yes, the other ones absolutely. you need to get to first before you even get to those. So there's so many. This would be a really, they would be a very cool article for something uh, that's, that should be included in the book, right? Like to actually have to a flow chart of some description. hundred percent. Like so good. Yeah, really good to be able to do this out because I think I, we get, you. I don't know if you get asked that a lot, but I get asked that a lot about how I'm at a plateau. What am I supposed to do? And here's like the here's the flowchart. Boom, 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 boom. Did you do these things? And here's the flowchart for whether or not you can figure out. And the last place you're probably going to be is in an adaptation plateau. There's probably a multitude of other things that are coming in place first. Closing up real quick. Let me also add because this drives me crazy. Um, and I don't know if we've ever even talked about this on the podcast. We talked about it privately. Progressive overload means that there are adaptations that occurred in the workout that you were currently unable to perform under the same conditions. What this means is adding another set is not a form of progressive overload. Adding a new exercise (laughs) is not a form of progressive overload. It's so hard for me not to call out a couple of quote-unquote educators on this because they keep saying this shit and it drives me nuts. The only thing that required you to do an extra set in the gym was time. If I did 100 pounds for three sets last week, and it was eight, eight, six, and I do 100 pounds for four sets this week, I still could have done 100 pounds for four sets last week. I just would have had to hang out for another three to five minutes. Yeah, and, and ultimately that's you know critical to our understanding of what progressive load actually is. So 
I think the reason why that this gets misconstrued is because of the actual term itself kind of sucks. It does. It's horrible. It, it's it's because when people think progressive overload, I think what the what the actual term they're thinking of when they add shit is progressive volume load. Yes. Because they're adding, just doing another set there. If you look at, if you're looking at reps times sets times load, you're looking at volume load. I think they're looking at prog- progressive volume load. Progressive overload allows us, essentially, a lot of people don't understand this term, allows us to keep the stimulus on the muscles the same. Yes. And that is something that they, when I say that, they always get that deer in the headlight look. They're, they're like, no, it's more. I'm like, no, it's the same. Progressive overload allows us to keep the stimulus on the muscles the same because there were adaptations that happened. So now we keep, in order to keep the, the, the amount of stimulus on the muscles the same, that's what progressive overload has done is it goes, oh, you can do more under the same conditions that you were performing in last week. It's an increase in performance. There's got to be a way to narrow this down without me saying a million words. It's simply an increase in performance under the same conditions that were done last time. Basically, yes. I mean, the way that I like to try and help people understand it is to say, if I do three sets of, or no, even simpler, if I do a single set of five rep max last time, yes. and I've gained some strength uh, as a result of various adaptions happening, and I come back and I just do five reps this time. But you could have done six. I could have done six. Is the stimulus this time the it's same less. or it's smaller? Less. Yes, it's smaller. So in order to keep the adaption the same, I have to do that extra repetition. So that's what we're looking for. That's what progressive overload is telling us. It's telling us that we are now capable of doing more with the same stimulus and and creating the same stimulus. I don't understand how people don't understand that concept. I'm like, no progressive overload is that it gives me two things. It gives me feedback that adaptations occurred and allows me to keep the stimulus the same. And they're like, no, the stimulus is more. I'm like, how (laughs) would it be more? If the stimulus is more, then people would actually grow faster as they became more advanced, which is not happening. You would end up with like people being the size of Jupiter by the time they were like 25. <laughs> the exponential increase. They would become a planetary mass of their own. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, it would be um, a mass monster be... in the true sense of the word. Yes, yeah. uh, ju- <laughs> ju- Jupiter o- uh, overload. I, I, re, I reached interplanetary, interplanetary <laughs> overload. I reached interplanetary overload. Do you see that, that thing off in the distance in the sky? That's Joey. That's yeah. Joey. He was able to get more stimulus through his progressive overload and reached interplanetary uh, uh, galactical inner overload. Now he's out there in the sky somewhere. He has his own solar system. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, progressive uh, overload is about keeping stimulus the same. There you go. All right. So that was a pretty excellent one, if I must say so myself. I felt like uh, for anybody who doesn't know, sometimes we do preliminary stuff where we talk and we go in. And afterwards, I'm like, I felt like the preliminary talk was good. We literally didn't do anything. We Chris goes, we're doing uh, plateaus today. I'm like, all right, let's get started. And I hit record, and that's it. You guys got everything organically. So, all right, wrapping up that uh that podcast chris like i said I, th- I think that was one of our one of our better ones in terms of we actually did a brainstorming session and kind of was able to give people an actual practical application model for how to, to, to go down through and 100 i'm telling everybody we didn't even talk about this or practice this before going in 
um, ahead of time. We actually just hashed it all out for everybody right here. So I'm guessing you're going to write something up on this or do a flow chart for it because it's pretty cool. I already have a flowchart, but it doesn't. What it doesn't do is break out the stimulus um, plateau concept into uh, adaption plateaus and non-adaption plateaus. That's the only thing that's missing. That's pretty cool, um, man. I gotta say, just kind of hashing that out with fatigue. Yeah, that was pretty uh, cool. Adaptation plateaus, non-adaptation plateaus, and then interplanetary. Um, interplanetary overload. plateaus. No, that's progressive <laughs> overload. overload. Yeah. <laughs> All right, bud, I'm wrapping it cool. up. Thanks for being here with me, and uh, I'll see you all next time. And thanks for everybody that was joined us.